Let's turn to look at God's Word from Psalm 19, page 561. And we'll look at the first six verses, like we did last time. A psalm of David, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuits to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." So we get the theme of the psalm from verse 1. It sums the whole thing up. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And last time we saw how that was so. That when we looked at all that God has made, the universe, and all the objects in the universe and on the earth, that we said that these things declare certain things about God, that from looking at what he has made, you can tell things about God. The size of the universe and its complexity and the wisdom of God in all of its laws, that these laws were set and they continue to work. As we look at it all, we get a sense of the immense power of God to speak such a thing from nothing into being. And his immensity from its size, and we gave some details about the size of the universe, how unimaginable it is. And his wisdom in designing all of the parts from very large to very small, that that takes a lot of wisdom, that it cannot arise by simple chance from nothing and from just matter. It can't put itself together into a machine and work that it takes wisdom to build all of these things. We saw that Paul says in Romans 1 that by looking at it all, we're without excuse. That it says clearly and communicates clearly to us that God exists. And that Paul even says, though we knew God, we did not glorify him as God. Paul says we know this, that there is a knowledge of it, and that we receive uh, that knowledge, that it reaches us. The psalmist says that here. He says that um, it, day after day they pour forth speech in, in verse 2, and night to night they reveal knowledge. So something is pouring forth from all that is made and telling us, and we receive that, and we said that Paul lets us know that the reason we don't accept it and act upon it is that we suppress the truth. We, there's a reason we don't like that message. There's a reason we don't like that information. We don't look at it calmly and uh, with neutrality, willing to consider it. He says there's something in our souls that wants to suppress that truth 
and sit on that truth and push it down and sit upon it so that we don't have to deal with it. And that is because we know that there's a problem between us and God. That's why there is such a thing as the atheist. That is why there is a big new atheist movement in the Western world today. It's not because of the advance of science. That's one reason for it. But it's also because God is being obliterated from, from the discussion in the Western world. The Western world is affluent. It has achieved things. It does not need God. It does not need God for food. It does not need God for resources anymore. The Western world has all of the physical things it wants. And it wants to push a responsibility to God out. And it just leaves man looking at these things. And he suppresses the reality that he has a God. Because he thinks he doesn't need one. But we know he does need one. And that is why the morality of the Western world and the spiritual health of the Western world um, and the mental health of the Western world is rapidly deteriorating. And it did so in the 20th century. There is a pandemic of mental, emotional health in the Western world. And marriage is, is fraying apart. Families are fraying apart. And the today's atheists, a lot of them grew up in divorced families where there was conflict and all of these things. The good things God made are being torn apart by man because he wants to suppress the truth. And Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And they suppress that truth. We know that there is a consequence for the way we live. And we are constantly telling ourselves that we don't need to deal with God. So we see his wisdom and his power and immensity and design and his infinity and his immense power to build all of this. And though it says clearly that someone must have made this, we tell ourselves, no, no one made this. It arose spontaneously out of nothing by itself for no reason. And we cannot explain why, but we are satisfied with that answer. And God is displeased with that answer because it robs him of the glory that he sends to us in it. But there are two other things about God. Attributes, like we listed last week. Two wonderful things about God that are also displayed in the creation and that we need uh, to be aware of. Paul says his invisible attributes are clearly seen. And these two things I want to consider with you are his beauty and his goodness. His beauty and his goodness. And David has those things in mind as he writes this psalm. You'll remember that the psalm is split in two. Verses 1 to 6 are about the creation. That's God's first book. The book of general creative revelation. And verse 7 to verse 11 are about his other book, his other revelation, his special revelation, the word of God. In one, God displays himself by what he's made. In the other, God speaks directly to man and calls him to salvation in Jesus Christ. He has these two books that can be read. And 
the linking verse that links these two books is verse uh, four, uh, verse five. Uh, the end of verse four into five. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. That's the linking verse. So we know the sun is part of the creation. So it's revealing something. But we'll see next week that David's going to link the sun shining in the creation that we see with the word of God being like the sun shining. That's the link in David's mind. He says, it declares his glory and the greatest example of that is the one that's most obvious to us, the one that rises in front of us every morning and dominates the sky and lights up the world. It sends light on the earth and we can see something about God in that. And we're going to see next week that David then says, well, that is just like the word of God, the Holy Scriptures. They are like a sun and they shine on the soul of man, just as the sun shines on the world. But David definitely has in mind the beauty and goodness of God when he describes the general glory and then focuses on the sun. He definitely has these things in mind. That when the sun rises, it is beautiful. And it's not only beautiful itself, it reveals all the beauty that's in the world. These things are made and they're beautiful, and it's the sun that lights them up and enables us to see them. If there was no sun, we wouldn't see each other right now or see plants or animals or anything. The sky would be very different if there was no sun. It is beautiful in itself. And he has that in mind. See how he gives a a metaphor in verse 5. The sun rises, he says, and the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. That's a picture of a man in this Jewish world who dresses himself on his wedding day with special clothes to go and meet his, his new bride. The best day of his life, a day of joy and a day of beauty, You imagine when someone is about to get married, they rise out of bed that morning and it is very unique. It seems that all they can do is rejoice and hope and everything is beautiful and beauty is a dominant feature of every wedding. And David says, the world and the cosmos are filled with the glory of God, but we see the sun rising like someone rising on his wedding day, full of joy and well-dressed and well-kept and making himself ready to meet his bride. That's what David thinks of when he sees the sun shining. And this sun says something to us about the beauty of God. So we see beauty and goodness. Well, beauty, the sun itself is beautiful. You probably take that for granted. If you are a Christian who knows and loves God and is committed to Christ, you probably take the sun for granted too. If you're not a Christian or if you are a skeptic um, and you have not accepted the reality of the God who made it, maybe sometimes you do think the sun is beautiful, but you probably take it for granted too. But it is a beautiful thing. How did it get there? Why is it there? If Darwin was right, and if the atheists are right, this universe, whatever it came from, is cold and dark and lifeless, and it can't produce life. 
Where, where did, where did a beautiful sun that works and that actually brings light and life to us, why is it even there? Why isn't there just a dead comet orbiting around? Why is there, why is there not just a big rock in the center of our solar system? The other rocks are going around. What, why is there such a thing as a beautiful sun? And I hope you agree that it is beautiful. It rises and it's red and then it's orange like a perfect, beautiful furnace in the shape of a circle and then it's yellow and gold and then when it's at its height, you can't look at it, it's piercing white. And the world has always been obsessed with the sun. Every culture has worshipped the sun. These pagan cultures are smarter than the modern Western culture because at least the old pagan world, like the Romans and the Babylonians, at least, at least when they looked at it, they thought this is worthy to be worshipped. This is not normal. There is something fascinating and beautiful about this. The modern atheist says, I'm not moved by this. I know what the sun is. It's an immense blazing ball of fire and nuclear fusion. And I know what it is, so I'm going to be cold-hearted and pretend it's not beautiful. But it clearly is. Just do a search on Facebook. Just do a search online. Just look up a famous photographer and look at the photographer's work. Why do we photograph it? Why, why do we stop when we see a sunset and enjoy it and marvel at it and then take a photo of it and share it with our friends? There's obviously something beautiful about the rising sun, whether it rises in the desert, in Africa, with its blazing heat lighting up the entire a desert, or whether it rises on the sea when people are out on ships and they see the sun rise. Who among us has never looked at the sun and been stunned by the beauty of it and its loveliness? But although David focuses on the sun, we can apply that to the other things we see too. He just wants to point out one thing and say, look, The sun rises, and this declares God's glory. It's beautiful, and it gives light. But he's already said the whole heavens declare God's glory. So God's beauty is not only seen in seeing a a sun that he's made, but everything else around it that he's made, even things we considered last week. You consider the universe. Do a search online and look at some pictures of the universe. We have some very accurate pictures of some things that are very far away and we know more than our ancestors did about these things and these things are astonishing to look at not just the size and immensity of it that we saw last week but just the objective beauty of the thing to look at it to look at Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and just be in awe that these objects exist and that they look the way they do There is something that happens in the human heart when you realistically consider these objects and don't look at them coldly. I certainly, if I look at a a picture from one of our satellites that's passing Saturn, when it's billions of miles away, 
and it takes a picture of it and you see the size of it and the rings around it and how perfect the rings look. I just look at that and the first thing I think is, how did that get there? Where did that come from? And I feel so small compared to it because I know our earth would just be swallowed up by something like that. Our own planets are beautiful, but if you look at pictures of the galaxy that we are in and the galaxies that are further away, they are stunningly beautiful. They're not just objects to be studied, they're, they're works of art. And they are awesome. We, we have pictures of the, the pinwheel galaxy. That's a, the, the nickname that they've given this galaxy because it looks like a pinwheel. And it is far bigger than the galaxy we are in. And we have perfect photographs of it. It sits like that, facing us. It's not in line with us. It's sitting up like that so we can see its spirals when we look in the sky. And this ob- these objects are huge. But when you look at them, they're it is perfectly swirled round because of the laws God has made, the gravitational forces and attractions that go on. And it looks like when you, when you unplug the drain and the water goes down in a perfect circle. This is just a huge version of that. And it has gases and things in it. And when you look at it, it's like, it's like a bag of jewels. It glows in glory, in purple and in blue and with the yellow of the huge star that's in its center, and you look at it. Why is there such beauty? Where did it come from? Why do we like looking at these things? There's something even more amazing that I came across about 10 years ago. I'm kind of interested in some of these things. And we have a telescope that orbits our Earth, the Hubble Space Telescope that NASA built. And they upgraded it in about a decade ago with, with more powerful cameras and to test it they pointed the Hubble telescope at an empty portion of the sky that you couldn't see that anything was in just a tiny square in the huge sky and they just trained the telescope on that empty space it's just a little black square to test what the cameras might see and they left it there for a couple of weeks to take in any small bit of light that might come in. And it looked like there was nothing there. And NASA was astonished when they got the pictures back of what had been photographed. Because in that little square, when they blew it up, a photo came through that that little black square, when you blew it up, it had tens of thousands of galaxies in that square. Not planets, entire galaxies that looked like that, little swirls, tens of thousands of them all together. And each of those little swirls each have 200 billion stars within it. And that is very far away. It's called the deep field. That's the name they gave it. Deep field because it's deep in space, way on the edge of what we know. And they're astonished. They, they didn't know that these things were there. And not like that. And it opened up all these new studies for them. Now, that's all very interesting. But for me as a Christian, when I saw that, I didn't know those things were there. I look up and I see some stars, a moon and a sun. But when I see that, I think, I'm not sure I even know 
the God that I know. Because I know his love, I know his forgiveness in Christ, I know the work of the cross, I know his work in our hearts to cleanse us from sin. And we say, well, I know God, I know the Father, but I did not know my Father had done that. We diminish God to an earthly father type figure. But what kind of God has the ability to build all of that? What kind of God is he? And the thing that amazes me about him is that he does not just have the power to build it. He takes the time to make it visually astonishing, to make it colorful and beautiful. It reveals something to me of his mind. So you have the sun and the stars, but you look around in our earth too, friends, because he says here that there is nothing hidden at the end of verse 6 from the heat or the light of the sun. And the picture there is that we can look out and that's wonderful and beautiful, but the sun rises. We're in our neighborhood of this great creation. The sun rises to light up the world. That's God's focus. He made these other things almost for fun so that we might discover them one day. But this sun rises and there's nothing hidden from its heat on this earth. And you'll know if you know Genesis that God is very focused on the earth. The earth isn't just a speck of dust in in God's mind, although it's that size. the, The amazing thing is he built the whole thing, but it's there as a canvas and a painting for the earth to observe. For the earth is the place where God is truly going to reveal his glory. The earth is the place where he makes man in his image. The earth is the place where his son will come in human form to save men. The earth is where God is interested in. And the sun rises in the earth and lights up everything else in the earth so we can see its beauty. And we see God's beauty in the things that are lit up and that we can look at. We see it in the seas and in the deserts. Uh, We see it in the jungles and in the forests and in the continents. We see it on the beaches. We see it in the trees. We see it in the wild animals on all the continents and how beautiful they are. And we see it in the birds. We see it in the plants. And we see it in the fruit and everything that grows on the plants. You think about all that beauty a lagoon with a waterfall going into it, and the trees all around it. God has created these things with their color and their sounds and their refreshing nature, or a desert with an oasis in it with palm trees, or a great jungle like the Congo jungle, which covers the entire of Central Africa, where most of the oxygen in the world uh, comes from. God created trees and they drop seeds and more trees grow and more trees grow and it's there in its beauty and its color in its beautiful greens and different shades of greens and yellows and reds and everything that grows on it and all the birds that live in them with their beautiful colors he made all of that to reveal something of his beauty. And for us to study these things and look at them and to think upon the beauty 
of God. When you look at an elephant and its color and its design and its behavior, it's telling you something about the one who built it. That all of its organs work and its trunk works and it can balance and it can move and it can look after its young. It's telling us something about the one who made it. And there's more than that. There's ourselves. He says, it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, uh, like a strong man ready to run his race. There's even the human body. That the animals have, some of them have really distinct beauties and glories. But then there's us. Leonardo da Vinci was obsessed with the human body and how perfect it was. And its proportions and its harmony and the way that we can walk and move and the muscles on the body and the proportion of the head and the hands and the fingers. And he painted and drew repetitively to try and draw the perfect human body. And then he used it in all of its paintings. And you'll see that this beauty is real and it's something that attracts us because why do so many people go to view Leonardo's work and other artists too? Why has it stood the test of time? Because there is something inherently mysterious and beautiful when we look upon uh, these things. He was obsessed with that and trying to work out the proportions. And what I want to say to you is that Men like Leonardo, up until our day, even scientists today, they're convinced that there is an inherent beauty in all that has been made, a mathematical beauty in all that has been made. And not all scientists believe this, but a lot of them do, that there is a thing that they call the golden ratio. And the golden ratio is um, based on mathematics. And that when you uh, build something with the angles and the proportion that each part is put together, that there is a mathematical beauty um, in these things. So I, I kind of get horrified whenever I re-enter into these things because I, then I have to remember high school math. And when, I, when my teacher tried to teach me what pi was, some of you will know what that is, that irrational number, 1.638, that is in the design of a circle and so many other things. Now, where did that come from? Because Leonardo knew about it. He said that pi was in the proportion of the head and the arms and all of these things. And even cosmologists today, when they look up at those galaxies, the spirals of the galaxies and the way all everything is arranged, it follows the golden ratio. They find it up there. And they, they find it in the body of a dolphin and other animals too. That there is a, a perfection in the way all the parts have been put together. That when we look upon them, it's almost hard to explain. We look upon them and we know they are beautiful. When you look at a trash bin, you don't think that's beautiful. But when you look at a dolphin, there is something in it that just says beauty. And it may be that God built all of those things into nature to communicate his beauty to us. So the heavens declare the glory of God, but they also declare his beauty. And the earth 
declares it too. Now that beauty we see, and I hope you do see it, I hope you enjoy it, looking at plants and animals and insects, when you see that beauty, you're not looking at God. You're not looking at the very beauty of God. What you're seeing is a created beauty. And it can be powerful in itself, but when you look at it, you are supposed to be struck and impressed by the one that's behind that created beauty. If you look at a finch, it is beautiful, but you're not seeing God. But your first question should be, if he, if this all displays a beauty, and sometimes an overwhelming beauty, what must be the mind of the one who is behind these things? If I can call this beautiful, then what, how beautiful is the mind, the spiritual mind that created these things? There's a, a famous uh, movie, I uh, forget the name of, of the person. He was an American economist during the Cold War um, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics. And he had such an unusual ability at mathematics that um, the FBI recruited him to look at Russian code. And he could just look at it and decipher it without even doing any sums. That's how much ability he had at mathematics. And the movie was called A Beautiful Mind. And the makers of the movie, it's a true story, the makers of the movie are saying, this man was complex, he had difficulties um, and everything, but when, when it came to math, he had an ability that no one else ever had. He just looked at it, and he understood it just by looking at it, and they said he had a beautiful mind. Well, if that's true of of, of of that American economist, because he can look at that and understand it, and they say he has a beautiful mind. Well, could we not make a movie about God that's called A Beautiful Mind? If all that beauty is there when we see it, then how beautiful is God? For he is beautiful. He is pure in his being. He exists in absolute serenity and purity and clarity of spirit and mind. There is no deformity in his spirit, no contaminant in his spirit. There is no fracture in his spirit. He is one as Father, Son, and Spirit, and exists in beauty. And whenever he reveals himself in the world, as we see recorded in the scriptures, the light that pierces from God, it undoes man. It undoes him. He can't look at the perfect light that comes from the being of God. He dwells in inapproachable light. The psalmist calls this the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. He is absolutely pure and serene and dignified and glorious in his being. And if we look at the, at the outcomes of what he's done and we see, wow, that's beautiful. How much more beauty is in the being of God himself. And you see his power, immensity, wisdom, and beauty, and holiness in the creation. And part of God's beauty is that all of these things in him, they sit there in his character 
and they are perfectly in harmony. That's what beauty is. That's what da Vinci found out. Harmony and proportion. That's why God is beautiful. There are other characters, and our characters are out of line. Certain attributes are too big. Other attributes are too small. But God, in his justice and wisdom and glory and righteousness and holiness, all of these things come to their in God in perfect harmony and proportion. He's absolutely self-controlled, and he, he responds to every situation perfectly because all of his attributes are under control. And when they are all together like that, that's what we call beautiful. We even say that that person has a beautiful character, and we mean something by that. What that person did, they, they, they carried out this act. That was beautiful. We say it every day. It was beautiful what that person did. Well, what God does is always beautiful. So we see the beauty of God in the creation. But we also see his goodness. When David says at the end of verse 6 that there is nothing hidden from the heat of the sun, one of the things that's surely in that is that the sun rises each day and the light and heat of the sun fill the earth and enable everything to live and draw in that light, that, that light and that heat. So the sun doesn't just rise in the morning so God can give us a nice picture. The sun does something. It is beautiful and it shows us the beauty of the world, but it's doing something. And it is doing something good. It is an example of the goodness of God. And all that it lights up in the earth shows us the goodness of God too. When we look at the sea, or the blue sky, or we experience the breeze on our face on a hot day, all of these things are good. Now, there are other things in the creation that can be very bad, but just take that for the moment. These things are inherently good. They're not neutral. A breeze is not neutral. A breeze is appreciated, and it is there for goodness. When you look at the sky, and in its beautiful blue color, you don't shrug your shoulders and say, that's neutral. It's not neutral. It is a positively good thing, and you appreciate it. It says something about God. The psalm that we were going to sing, Psalm 136, it tells us that. It says, praise God for sun and moon. His mercy endures forever. Or his love endures forever. For he who created the cosmos, his love endures forever. He who gives food to all beasts, his love endures forever. All of these things in the world are examples and teaching things that we are to understand that God's goodness is communicated in them. When we look at the animals and watch them all behave, they are all examples of God's goodness. And we see God even feeding the animals, that they can all find food, that there is a provision for them. The Bible even says that God feeds the ravens. But he feeds a lot more than the ravens. He feeds the dolphins and he feeds the whales. And you might say, well, what about the things that are being eaten? 
It's not very good for them. That's another topic. That there is a reason for that. But he feeds these animals. And he feeds the land animals and the wild beasts. And he feeds <clears throat> those animals that only eat nuts and berries and plants. There is a provision for them and he feeds man too. These are all clear communications to us that we are in a world that isn't barren like Mars, but we are in a world that a designer has planted his goodness into and that can reproduce and breathe and live. It's a living organism. It, this is the place where life is. And to sustain that life, God is constantly displaying his goodness to that life and giving the resources for that life to go on. All of the, the fruit and all these things in the jungles and in the vineyards, when you look at them all, when you look at a vineyard or an apple tree, or you look at all of the berries that hang on a bush and their color and their beauty as you look at them, then you taste them. God even gave us the ability to taste good things and the ability to detect when something tastes bad or it's rotten. But there is such a thing as a good taste that we enjoy. We don't only eat because we need to. We eat because we enjoy. None of you eat ice cream because you need it. There are lots of things you eat. You don't need orange juice. You, you need water. But there are certain things you drink even because you like the taste of them. God created taste. God created sight. God created your stomach and he created these things to go inside of your stomach. And why did he do that? Because he's good. These things are good. And he made the sea team with living creatures and he saw that it was good. And he filled the land with plants and he saw that it was good. And he created the animals and he saw that it was good. These are all examples of God's goodness. And in your more relationship situations, there is goodness. For we are not only eaters. We are not only people that need energy. There are lots of other things we need too. God didn't create a world with a bunch of animals on it that they're just eating all the time. He created man, and man needs more than food. He created the family. He created marriage. He created friendship. He created brothers and sisters. We have a need made in the image of God to not be alone, for God isn't alone, Father, Son, and Spirit. God isn't alone. Allah, if he was real, would be alone. But God, God, Jehovah, is not alone. Father, Son, and Spirit, it's a family. And we need the same thing. Why are your parents married? Why do you want friends? Why do you love your siblings and want to protect them and spend time with them and enjoy them? Why? These are undeniable examples to you that are in your face every day when you wake up. 
Even in your home, God is saying to you, I am, and I made these things, and I gave these things to you and created them because I am good. And these things are beautiful and they're good. I'm looking down upon you and I can see some married people. Do you agree with me that it's good? That the sun rises like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. God isn't a cold watchmaker that makes machines. God gives us the capability to love and be in love. And God gives us the capability to enjoy a wedding day. He creates marriage. It's an exciting thing. The animals don't get married. That they bond, and there's a reason for that, and that's good too. But there's, there, man is completely separate from these things. God has done these things because he is good. And you have to think of that if you're a skeptic this morning. And it's difficult for you to get your head around this and accept it. And if, if you're living in a way that is away from God, and you have doubts about this and the Lord Jesus Christ. God created marriage because he has a bridegroom. The bridegroom comes out of his chamber here as a metaphor. But God has a bridegroom. His son is a husband. How often the scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the husband to the believer. He is the bridegroom of God. God loves his son and got his son ready for his wedding day. God understands family. God loves his son like and unlike the way you love your own children if you saw them getting married. That comes from God. Every married couple you see is a sermon to you that that God is good and that you need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need a husband. You need someone who's going to provide for you and look after you and you're facing death in the next few decades, and you're looking at it, and you need a husband. Every husband protects his home from danger, and from intruders, and from murderers. And when all of us are staring at a grave that's only a few decades away, then we need a husband who's going to come in and do something about that. Or we're just going to fall into it and lie there. Christ is that bridegroom. Are you shrugging your shoulders this morning at God? Does he seem boring? Does he seem unattractive? Does, as I'm telling you of something imperfectly of his beauty and goodness, are, are, you, are you sitting there and thinking, I don't see it. It doesn't interest me. I've got a few things going on in my life right now and that keeps me quite happy. I don't see this God, even the idea of God, giving us commands and making us and the need for salvation, the need for a cross. God telling us that we have a sin problem. I just don't, I don't like any of that. I don't like the taste of it. And my view of God is very negative. But let me tell you from the creation and also from this word and from the experience of every believer who knows and loves the Lord, that there is, there is no one who is good like God. He, he is not boring, he is not negative, he is not a tyrant, and he's not 
someone that if you see him that you can shrug your shoulders at. He is not like that. There is no one as beautiful and as good and as exciting and as joyful as God. How can you be indifferent to that? You say God's a tyrant. God's uninteresting. When I hear things from the Bible, they just sound, he, he just, he doesn't, God doesn't sound very happy. There is no one that is as happy as God. His joy makes any joy you're experiencing fairly apathetic if it's based on things in this world. God is perfectly satisfied right now. God has a joy that I wish I had. God rejoices over all he's made and over his son and over all he's done for his people. He is perfectly joyful, infinitely joyful. If you could see God right now, you would see the happiest thing you've ever seen. If you could see inside his soul, you would see someone who rejoices and who sings and who exults in his own happiness in a way that no one in this earth can give you and no psychologist or therapist or drug can give you. Even with the fallenness of man, even when God has to judge man, even when God sends terrible judgments into this world and even destroys things, and even when God looks at sinners, and even when he looks at hell itself, hell is an awful place where the wrath of God is the only thing that is seen, known, or tasted. All a person in hell experiences is the purest anger that exists. That's all they know. But does that make God a tyrant? Is he a Russian dictator? No. No. His happiness and joy is not disturbed or contaminated by the fact that as a judge, he needs to give justly to man. Human judges, even if they're good, they see terrible cases coming before them and they have to mete out a judgment upon those people. If, they're, if the judge is good, then he has to give the right sentence. And maybe that judge will go home and eat dinner with his wife and children and he might be disturbed and have nightmares and he might feel absolutely conflicted and contaminated by the evidence that he's seen and the thing he's had to do. To, to that criminal. God is not like that. You have to just take that with you. He perfectly judges and he is okay with judging because he knows that it's right to do. And he, he doesn't have to worry that he's done the wrong thing. He has done what is right and his joy and his happiness over himself and his church are unaffected by having to deal with a certain portion of men that way. It does not mean he is harsh. God is beautiful and God is good. There is none who experiences goodness and joy and happiness as a bridegroom on the wedding morning 
No one experiences that like God. So why am I telling you all this? And what does God expect of this? Why does he display all of these things in the earth? Uh, Paul tells us, and it was on the front of the order of service, you can read it uh, when you leave the service. Paul tells us, do you not know that in all the patience and goodness of God is to lead you to repentance? That is why his beauty and goodness pours forth on man, whether they believe in him or not. And even though they're not going to change, and they're going to remain in rebellion and not embrace Christ and not embrace God, God still pours it all out on them. It pours out of every cell and every atom and every animal and every created thing in this world, this living world of color and goodness. It's pouring forth around us all the time. And Paul tells us why that's happening. Because it's designed to lead us to repentance. When we see this goodness, we're supposed to respond and acknowledge it. Not ignore it. The heavens declare the glory of God that we may have an opportunity to respond to it. And this is the day of opportunity. We get one life. There is only one. It's infinitely valuable. You have a soul. You have a mind. You have love. You have right and wrong. You have a conscience. You have hopes and a desire to live on and on. It's in you and this is your time. Many people have had their chance and opportunity and they're gone. But you're alive now. You aren't an animal. The animals die and that's it. That's not what will happen to you. You are not an animal. And if you want to know why God put the pinwheel galaxy in the sky and why the sun rises every morning and why the rain drops on the plants in your garden, if you want to know why that is happening, it is because God is good. And though you are a sinner, he doesn't take his fist and smack you in the face. He drops rain on you. He gives you food. He gives you friends. He gives you a mind that works. Why did he do that? Because he wants you to turn back to him, the creator that made you, and put the relationship right. It is to lead you to change and repent. Repent means to turn back to God. All of these things are sermons to you in your life, and they're constantly crying out to you, God is good, go back to him. Don't ignore these things. I hope after this sermon that you'll at least hesitate before you drink a glass of water and before you eat your next meal. And that it will say to you, this is designed to lead you to repentance. This has been given to you to show you that God is good and that he's willing to save. Now is the day of salvation. I'm very burdened about this. We're numb and we think life just goes on and on and on. It wouldn't go on. I saw pictures appear online last night of people that went out in their trucks to do their job and to deliver things on the roads and the roads have become icy and some of these people are dead. Do you think those people got up 
in the morning and looked at the sun rising and thought, I better deal with this. Now they didn't. They thought, I'll have more time to deal with this. I worry. I had to take a trip two days ago and I was in the car and even as a Christian, I'm worried. I thought, I could die here if something goes wrong. If someone crashes into me, I could die. My dear friend, stop putting this off. I don't want to be the pastor that preached to people that God was good and they didn't do anything about it and then they die. I couldn't live with that. No one else may have told you. Maybe no one else screams it out to you. But when that day comes and you pass from this world, Are you placing a bet? Do you know what's on the other side? Stop playing Russian roulette with your body and soul. You don't know what's going to happen. and You don't know what's on the other side. And God tells us what's on the other side. And there'll be no appeal. You can't appeal to the Supreme Court. When you pass to the other side... Death without God will seal upon you a permanent horror and a permanent anger and judgment. And it's my, I would be sinning if I didn't tell you this. If you have received all that goodness and looked at it and stared at it and you shrugged your shoulders at it and you don't do something about this now, then when that event comes and your soul and body are separated, you won't be able to put them back together. And you'll be plunged into a place where the word goodness and beauty will never come from your mouth again. There is no beauty or light or goodness or life in hell. Christ says, it is the outer darkness. And it's permanent. That's the duty of the church and the duty of the the gospel preacher, please, I I care about you. And I don't want you to keep walking out of here as if this is no big deal. Please, look around you and accept it. That this is speaking to you. That he is there and that you know the fact that you will, you will go into the ground And you need to do something about it now. May God all give us the grace to uh, do these things and to make sure that we know what is going to happen to our souls. Amen. Let's uh, remain seated and I'll pray before we sing. O Lord our God, impress upon us the urgency of the gospel and that you have shown these things in creation and that all of us take these things from you every day and often we do not thank you for them and we do not realize the wonder and grace that's shown in them. We all have food and clothing and 
Most of us have bodies that work. These are all great gifts from your hand. And it is a solemn thing to be human. Because you've placed in our custody something very valuable. Your own image. Lord, help us to look around and to look up. And to look at the glory of all that's been made. For you have revealed yourself in it. And it tells us clearly that there is a good and a beautiful creator who calls us to turn to him and to seek him and to find him. Bless us all to find you and to know you, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.